everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, 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 hello. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So excited to be here with you. We have a great show for you tonight. Alan McLeod, the journalist from Mint Press, very prolific fellow. He is a senior staff writer and podcast producer for Mint Press News. He's written two books about the media. One is called Bad News from Venezuela, colon, 20 Years of Fake News and Misreporting. And the other one is called Propaganda in the Information Age, colon, Still Manufacturing Consent, and quote. And he contributes to places like Fair, The Guardian Salon, Jacobin Magazine, and more. Before I bring him in, just going to tell you how it's going to happen tonight. We're going to have Alan on the show. Again, great guest. And then we're going to have this part, you know, open to everyone. If you are not watching live, though, there will be a part that's Patreon only. So if you're watching this after the fact and you want to access that chat, you can do that at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Uh, of course, would love for you guys to all become Patreon supporters. Also subscribe. Oh, and huge news. We hit 60,000, over 60,000 subscribers. This is a major moment, historic moment. Sorry, I don't have any sound effects, but I want to thank everyone for subscribing. Also, I want to thank people for joining. You can become YouTube members, and that gives you access to little cute badges and emojis, including Bodhi emojis. That's a little dog. And um, make sure you like the stream. Just do that right now. Just do it. It's a very easy thing to do. Just hit the like. Just hit the like. Uh, only 60K should be 600K. Well, that's in your hands, fam. So please subscribe and tell your friends. And friends don't let friends not subscribe to the Katie Helper Show. So I'm going to bring in our guest. Uh, very excited. Oh, and other thing is I'm going to be at Colin right after the show. So right after the show at Colin. And the link to that is in the description. Okay, so I'm bringing in Alan McLeod. Oh, and yes, happy birthday to Aaron Mate. Happy birthday, Aaron Mate. Okay, let's bring in Alan. Hello, Alan, how are you? What's going on, Casey? Nice to be with you. You too. Thank you so much for joining us from across the pond from scotland does that count as across the pond yeah sure i mean england usually is across the pond but you guys are there too yeah we're just above them it's the same atlantic it's a pretty long way <laughs> right across the pond and above above the brits so thank you you must be a bit of a night owl yeah i think so uh i'm not one to get up pretty early yeah that's for sure so that's when you do your scouring of the internets which you really seem to do your pieces are always extremely informative and chock full of research and information. And we'll get to some of your kind of epic Twitter threads, but it does seem like you must be checking the internet all hours of the night. Yeah, you know, uh, I do see a lot of stuff. I th if you just uh, pretty much, if you go to like uh, the pages of the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal, you always see something absolutely ridiculous there that you can mock. So yeah, I'm not terminally online like a lot of people, but yeah, I do spend a fair amount of time on there. But it's a, it's substantive. You're doing media criticism. 
Yeah, exactly. That's what I did uh, for my PhD. And then somehow I was able to finagle that into a career. Outside of academia, you mean? Yeah, that's right. And what was your discipline? Uh, well, officially it was sociology. So I'm trained in social sciences and uh, in particular in journalism studies and media studies. And I actually, as one of the books you were talking about, is um, I basically updated uh, Herman and Chomsky's propaganda model for the internet age. Awesome. Have they read it? Oh, well, okay. Herman, obviously not so much because he died, but has Chomsky? Yeah, me and Noam did a chapter together actually in that. So that was good. Awesome. Well, I have to get that book. Aren't you glad I didn't pretend that I had read it and obviously revealed that I hadn't by asking you if Chomsky had read it? Nobody reads books anymore. No, but I do want to get it. So I will order them. Thank you to Gebert for your super chat. And yes, Alan, you are Scottish, right? I just want to make sure that I'm Someone's asking in the chat. That is indeed correct. Okay, cool. So you have a great piece. It's called, It's Different, They're White. Media ignore conflicts around the world to focus on Ukraine. A Mint Press news analysis found that in a single week, Fox News, The New York Times, The Washington Post, CNN, and MSNBC ran almost 1,300 separate stories on the Ukraine invasion, two stories on the Syria attack, one on Somalia, and none at all on the Saudi-led war on Yemen. So can you tell us what made you write this piece in the first place and how you conducted the analysis? Sure. Well, we're living in a very dangerous time right now. There's a lot of nation-on-nation wars going on. In fact, uh, right now, we can even say there's at least four going on. We could even broaden that to five. What I did was I looked at uh, four of uh, the most prominent ones, which is the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Saudi attack on Yemen, the U.S. has um, also re-begun its um, bombing uh, strikes on Somalia as well. And there is also the fact that Israel has uh, begun shelling Damascus in Syria again, as well as another uh, another few uh, towns as well. So there's a lot of uh, violence going on right now. But I did notice that uh, media were overwhelmingly uh, focusing on one uh, particular act of violence, which is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's one of the bigger ones. You could argue perhaps the Saudi attack on Yemen has actually killed more people in the last couple of weeks and also perhaps was uh, bigger. But um, yeah, it's certainly the Russian invasion of Ukraine should be in the news. But uh, I wasn't, even I wasn't uh, ready for the sort of incredible um, contrast in the coverage between the different events. What I found was there was 1,200 and 98 separate articles in MSNBC, Fox News, CNN, the New York Times, and the Washington Post about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There were only two about the Israeli attack on Syria. There was only one about the US strike on Somalia. And there was none at all about this uh, increasing Saudi uh, war on Yemen. Now, Obviously, I'm not saying that um, Ukraine shouldn't be in the news. It absolutely should be. It's one of the biggest stories going. But the fact that uh, that has dominated the coverage and the other three have gotten virtually none by comparison. In fact, there's 400 times the coverage of Ukraine as there is of Yemen, Somalia and Syria combined. That really tells us something about what's going on in the media. Because, of course, with the Ukraine uh, problem, uh, the Ukraine uh, war, uh, the Russians are the bad guys, and the um, the victims in this situation is the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian government, who are pretty much more or less uh, a NATO ally, uh, an ally of the EU, an ally of the US. Whereas the other three, it's actually either the United States itself doing it, 
or its very close allies in Saudi Arabia and Israel. And so that really dictates why these um, why these uh, conflicts are really getting no coverage whatsoever. It's because it's actually the U.S. doing it, and the victims in those cases are all groups that the U.S. considers either terrorists or hostile enemy agents. And so there's very little... Um, there's very little, uh, you know, we're not getting invited to uh, bring in hundreds of thousands of Yemeni refugees. We're not hearing denunciations of Israel's attacks on Syria. But we are hearing about how terrible the Russians are and how we need to open our homes to Ukraine. And that's very much what the media are trying to do. Uh, turning on and off the outrage meter is a very important way in which uh, elites manufacture consent for U.S. Uh, foreign policy. And I think this is a great example of this. There's essentially no difference between any of the outlets. This is a bipartisan consensus that we're going to cover Russia's attacks because they're the bad guys and we can make them seem even more evil. Whereas our allies, we don't really want to bring attention to what they're doing. And we certainly don't want to uh, bring a sort of public outrage over the fact that the US has started bombing Somalia again. And I think that's really the key here is that if if uh, the media covered uh, the war in Yemen or the attacks on Syria in the same way as they cover the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, these conflicts would be over tomorrow because the US public and the US government especially could end these with a phone call to those countries. They would just say, we're removing our support and that would just end tomorrow. But unfortunately, with uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we don't have that sort of power. Right. So you actually say at the very end of your piece, you say Americans are united in rejecting Russia's attack on Ukraine. A recent poll found that only 6% of the public consider its invasion justified as opposed to 74% against. This suggests that if the media covered U.S. imperialism in the same way it covers its Russian equivalent, then those wars would end immediately. But they do not, and the Ukraine coverage underlies that this is a choice they're making every day. So a lot of people will say... Why, given what Russia is doing, why do you want to emphasize other conflicts? But to me, this kind of answers that question. Well, what I'm certainly not saying is that we shouldn't be covering Ukraine. It's one of the big stories. This definitely deserves all sorts of um, all sorts of attention and condemnation. But the difference with these other ones is that actually the United States government could act to end these tomorrow because this is actually the US and its very, very close allies that are actually doing or perpetrating the violence. And that could be stopped immediately, but that would not help US imperial goals. And so that simply doesn't happen. And it's interesting. So you talk about the way, the kind of racist or tribalist, xenophobic way that certain people are reporting on this conflict, but that's not the whole story. So first let's look at that part of it and then we'll get into why that's not the whole story. Brad, could we play the Mint Press video? Look at what happened in the last refugee crisis in Europe back in 2015. Poland was one of the EU countries that, you know, was hesitant to take in refugees. Talk about what has changed. Just to put it bluntly, these are not refugees from Syria. These are refugees from uh, neighboring Ukraine. I mean, that, is, quite frankly, is part of it. These are um, Christians. They're white. They're... Um, this isn't a place, with all due respect, um, you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan. This is a relatively civilized 
uh, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too, a city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen. It's very emotional for me because I see European people with blue eyes and blonde hair being killed. These are not people trying to get away from areas in North Africa. They look like any European family that you would live next door to. And this is not a developing third world nation. This is Europe. So Mint Press put that compilation together. But then you also say, while racism is clearly a factor in the coverage, it should be remembered that the bombing of Yugoslavia, a white nation comparable to Ukraine, was celebrated, not rejected. This was in large part because it was NATO itself that was the aggressor. And then you get into the concept of worthy versus unworthy victims. So could you explain that? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, there has been a ton of absolutely outlandish racist things being said on the media. You heard some of them there, CBS uh, journalist Charlie Degata saying, you know, this isn't like the Middle East. These people are relatively civilized, which is actually a shot at the Middle East and also a shot at Slavs because they're saying, you know, well, they're almost white. You know, they could, oh, you know, they're almost as good as us, they're us Western Europeans or us um, or us Americans. But, you know, they're still a little bit down. But um, yeah, the idea that this is purely driven by racism, I think, is uh, completely incorrect. In fact, for decades, um, media scholars have been laying out how media treats uh, atrocities and violences uh, around the world and how um, they uh, give different weights to different uh, atrocities going on. And basically, there are two things that affect that. One is who the perpetrator of the atrocity is, and two, it's who the victim is. And in Ukraine's case, as I was saying, Russia is the perpetrator, and the victims are our allies, which is the Ukrainian government or you know Ukraine as a whole. Whereas the other three, as I said, they are either the United States or its close allies doing it, and the victims in those cases are um, either you know brown-skinned people who are on the terrorist list, like, for instance, the Houthi rebels in uh, in Yemen or the forces of Bashar al-Assad in Syria. So those people, um, almost by definition, cannot be treated with respect or reverence. So the, um, you know, the victims, the children being ripped in half by these Raytheon laser-guided missiles in Yemen will never see pictures of those people. And the reason is, is because it would generate outrage and start, you know, People in America, people in Western Europe started to think about, you know, is this foreign policy the sort of thing that I want to contribute towards? Is it the sort of thing I want to support? And so ultimately, it would start manufacturing dissent rather than manufacturing consent. And that's very important because ultimately, the corporate media are there to push whatever line that um, either the government or the corporate state, which pretty much runs the government, want to see. And right now, what they want to see is uh, the bad guys being our enemies. And this is uh, generating enormous political capital for them right now. As we see, like, people across the US and Western Europe are saying, let's have a no-fly zone, let's start World War III in order to save these people. But they would never... It almost would never occur to them to say, you know, well, let's uh, do something, let's overthrow our government to stop the suffering in Yemen or in Syria. And can you talk about the way that Herman and Chomsky looked at the two cases? Yeah, so they actually looked at a lot of them in their book, uh, Manufacturing Consent, which came out in 1988. Together, they compared the coverage of two genocides that were occurring at the exact same time. 
one in Cambodia, which was being perpetrated by an enemy state, and one carried out in East Timor by the Indonesian military, which were not only an ally of the United States, but were actually being armed and funded pretty much in its entirety by the US government. So in the case of Cambodia, that made front page news and was uh, you know, leading broadcasts for months, if not years, whereas with the one in, uh, in East Timor, which killed 250,000 people, it's believed. Uh, the coverage of that, when the violence uh, got to its zenith, actually dropped to absolutely zero in the US press, as Herman and Chomsky found out when they actually went back and started looking through the news databases. So the idea that you know uh, one death is uh, equivalent wherever it is in the world is actually not the case. Uh, media basically decide what sort of... Um, what sort of uh, atrocities to put in front of our faces for very political reasons. Something that you tweeted about this weekend, you said, I did not have senior statesmen trying to rehabilitate Hitler on my 2022 bingo card. And we'll get to what you're referring to in one second. And you also quote, imagine being a former elected German politician saying this, you quote Pavel Mayer, who said, so here's the thing, guys, here's, here's the thing. Putin, colon, he's just like Hitler. That's one of the ideas that's being floated right now. So you quote Pavel Mayer, Hitler did not use his office to extract bribes and get into bed with organized crime. So we could say that in the terms of civic values, Hitler was even a more decent person than Putin, as crazy as it sounds. Yeah, that's the biggest thing. That's like the top of the moral. If we're doing a spectrum of morality, definitely all the way on the right side of the worst, most evil thing you can do, right ahead of genocide, is extracting bribes. Like there's, right after, you got the genocide, the attempted elimination of many peoples, the murder of 9 million people total through a mechanized, industrialized process. And then right after that, though, coming in at number one is accepting bribes. So that's what Pavel Mayer is saying. And then you also quote, this was great. I hope people saw this. This was a great moment. So we got one difference. This is, was tweeted out by the Maddow blog, as in Rachel Maddow's show. Her staff runs a blog called Maddow Blog. And they're quoting Michael McFall, who is a former ambassador to Russia and also is a current Stanford professor. And they summarize this point. One difference between Putin and Hitler is that Hitler didn't kill ethnic Germans, German-speaking people. Putin slaughters the very people he says he has come to liberate, which is an interesting take. And then you have Anders Aslund, who says, really, I compare Putin with Hitler all the time. I think that Putin went all Hitler on February 24th, 2022. Hitler had more arguments for his attack on Poland, September 1, 1939, than Putin, German minority in Poland, and the Danzig Corridor, more historical German lands. Hitler recognized Poland but called for concessions. Putin absurdly claims that Ukraine is not a state. Hitler had left the League of Nations. Putin violates every international law there is. Hitler did not use chemical weapons. Putin is preparing to do so. He didn't use chemical weapons. Is this guy a Holocaust denier? Who is this person, Anders Aslund? Well, he's a pretty senior diplomatic guy. He's considered one of the big brains of NATO. He used to be pretty high up in the Atlantic Council, which is pretty much NATO's uh, brain trust, which you know comes up with all the policies of that. Um, I think he's from Finland, if I'm not uh, mistaken. He might be from Sweden. Don't quote me on that. Um, but yeah, he's been like the senior 
statesman considered this, you know, radically important thinker, a guy who really understands Russia. There's a lot of skeletons in his past, though. He was, um, I believe he was in the 1990s, actually one of the people who was, you know, if you if we want to talk about corruption, he was actually advising a lot of these oligarchs, which ripped apart the Soviet Union and uh, basically sold it off to all their friends, creating all these billionaires in the first place. So Asland should really know what he's talking about. And of course, the comparisons with Hitler are kind of ridiculous. Unfortunately, we're only told about a few years in history. So this is like the only thing we remember. But um, even in World War II, you know, quite apart from the Holocaust, which was perpetrated, you know, people, you know, using chemical weapons against uh, civilian populations, Aslan seems not to know that actually the German army did use chemical weapons and they used them against Ukrainians in Ukraine during World War II. Check out the siege of Sevastopol, for instance, as an example of when the Wehrmacht did actually use chemical weapons against the Red Army. Uh, as I said, in Ukraine, which was probably made up of mostly Ukrainian units uh, in that location as well. Yeah, and Michael McFall kind of apologized, but did one of those non-apologies, kind of doubled down. And the Maddow blog, they posted it without attributing it to him. They deleted it. But let's just, it's still worth watching the video of, of what he said. Brad, can we play Ambassador McFall? And I want to just say one other thing. I was just on Ukrainian television uh, just 30 minutes ago, brave journalists, just like uh, our team covering the war there in Kiev. Um, and one of the commentators said something interesting about how horrific this war is. Uh, and remember, these are people where who suffered under fascism that fought the Nazis. Uh, you know, as the Nazis came and the, 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 then the Red Army came back through. Uh, one of the Russian uh, journalists said, you know, there's one difference between Hitler when he was coming in uh, and Putin. Hitler didn't kill ethnic Germans. He didn't, he didn't kill German-speaking people. That's a very, I think people need to remember that when we're talking about cities like Kharkiv and Mariupol and Kiev, there are large populations there, um, you know, up to a third and sometimes as much to a half that are Russian speakers and are ethnic Russians. And yet Putin doesn't seem to be, care about that. He slaughters the very people he said he has come to liberate. So here you have a Stanford professor, former ambassador, regular NBC commentator, teaching the world that no Jews, communists, people with disabilities, LGBTQ people were actually German speaking, which I did not realize until I saw that great clip on MSNBC. I mean, I don't know if do they have some kind of like Trump derangement syndrome, but like Putin derangement syndrome that gets in the way of their cognitive abilities? Yeah, listen, they definitely do have that at NBC, especially at Rachel Maddow and especially with Michael McFall. One of the good things about listening to McFall, though, is that unlike most diplomats, he often says the quiet part loud. In fact, he says it pretty much every week. It looks like he spends most of his life on Twitter arguing with people who've got like names like Mean Boy 69 and they've got like 25 followers. And he gets into these ridiculous things all the time, puts his foot in it. And, you know, as you said, he just kind of uh, shows his either his complete ignorance or his low-key Holocaust denial. And that's what I said in my tweet. I just cannot believe that in 2022, we're actually literally trying to rehabilitate Nazis and Hitler especially. It is extraordinary what's going to happen here. Yeah. And so why do you think this is happening? Well, first of all, 
you know, we have to look at Putin as being like the number one bad guy in the world right now. So the rage against him is just unequivocal. McFall has, you know, had Putin derangement syndrome for a very, very long time. But secondly, I mean, as much as I sympathize with the Ukrainian people who are fleeing en masse or are suffering, uh, you know, with this bombardment that's going on or fighting between two different forces, we have to be honest and say that there are a large, large contingent of Ukraine, especially in the police and the military, who are out-and-out fascists. And so rehabilitating these fascists is actually kind of important because they're going to make up the backbone of the sort of army which uh, NATO are now thinking about using to bleed Russia dry over the next few years, because it does seem like that is their ultimate goal. They don't want this war to end very quickly with a, a, a just peace for everyone. They seem to want to flood the country with weapons. And probably the only people who are going to be willing to fight this protracted battle are going to be people with uh, extreme ideologies such as Nazism. And, you know, just one other example, um, for two years running, uh, Ukraine and the United States have been the only countries to vote against a UN resolution condemning Nazism and neo-Nazism. And in their statement saying why they did this, the US said that this bill was uh, Russian misinformation. Of course it was. And in fact, something else that you found and got into the Twitter discourse and media analysis discourse is this other clip. Brad, can you put up the clip of the PBS clip with the mayor of Conotope? Fear that they'll come back and either occupy or try and destroy the city. Yes, of course we are concerned. And this concern is not groundless. There's a big unit near our town, and using the weapons they have, they could destroy our town. But we are not afraid. We are ready to fight till the end, till the victorious end, to defeat these Russian cockroaches. Okay, never a good thing to refer to people as cockroaches, you know. It has kind of a genocidal ring to it, flair to it. Let's keep watching the clip. Cockroaches. After the Russians left, he rallied his troops, civilians, ready to resist. All of our cities are like this. All of our Ukraine is like this. We have weapons in our hands, we have armed up, and we are ready to kill occupiers. And thanks to the United States of America for supporting Ukraine with weapons. My weapon is American, and I think the occupiers will be pleased that we're killing them with American weapons. Okay, so here, you notice he has a blurred out background. You noted this, Alan. It's been confirmed. Can you tell people who this is in the background? That's uh, Stepan Bandera, who is being rehabilitated as this father of Ukraine. But uh, you actually, he was uh, a leader in the Ukrainian nationalist forces, which perpetrated the Holocaust against Ukrainians, against Slavs, against Jews, against gypsies uh, during World War II. So this is the person that they're really looking to in the past to become their sort of mythical leader. And that is, to say the least, highly problematic, quite frankly. And, you know, Seminikin himself is kind of an infamous guy. Until last week, if you typed his name into Google, the first thing that would come up was a Jerusalem Post article talking about how local Jews are cowering in terror and leaving Conotop because the uh, the population had elected this neo-Nazi uh, mayor, um, Seminikin, who has uh, reportedly actually um, 
being involved in pogroms against gypsies. So this guy is not some sort of nice guy who PBS should be giving a platform to and certainly not presenting him as some sort of liberatory hero who the United States and every free-thinking, freedom-loving person should be getting behind. Right. It's really disturbing. So there are two levels. One is like, and I don't know, honestly, if these people are so dumb that they don't know who Bandera is. I mean, as we know, and we covered this on uh, Useful Idiots, Richard Engel did a segment where we see the Azov Battalion insignia. So it's unclear whether these people know that or they just don't care, whether they don't know, sorry, the significance of these symbols or these people in the case of Stepan Bandera. So that Jerusalem Post article is no longer up. No, it is still up. It's just that um, he's been in the news of late and that's been bumped down to like number eight or nine in the search terms. I say, right. I'm reading at AmericanFaith.com and apparently he drives around in a car bearing the number 14 slash 88 in numerological reference to the phrases, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. That's the 14 word phrase. And then 88 refers to Heil Hitler because it's the eighth letter of the alphabet, H. He replaced the picture of President Petro Poroshenko in his office with a portrait of Ukrainian national leader and Nazi collaborator Stepan Bandera and refused to fly the city's official flag at the opening meeting of the city council because he objected to the Star of David emblazoned on it. The flag also features a Muslim crescent and cross. I mean, it is insane to me that there was no pushback, no like even attempt to ask cover this guy's behavior. Yeah, my sense is that when you were just talking earlier about are they stupid or are they actually clever, my sense is that there is no way people could miss this if they're even got even half an eye open. I think this is a a very deliberate attempt to try and whitewash neo-Nazis and that they genuinely don't care. The Azov Battalion, who's probably the most infamous neo-Nazi group in Ukraine, had this huge uh, press conference, uh, a sort of uh, propaganda show in Mariupol in Ukraine a few weeks ago, which journalists from all around the world attended. And we saw that incredible picture of this 79-year-old grandmother holding the AK-47 and being shown how to shoot it. But you just cannot help but notice those clearly Nazi symbols on uh, everybody's armbands. There's no way anybody could miss this. And frankly, you know, if you did 10 seconds of Googling, about who these groups are. Until a few months ago, even corporate media themselves were putting out articles about how dangerous and how worrying this trend is. But suddenly they've apparently all forgotten this. I simply cannot believe that's the case, especially when you look at, um, for instance, in the British media, we have eight national newspapers and six of them uh, had on their front pages uh, pictures from that, uh, you know, Azov Battalion, um, Azov Battalion, you know, publicity stunt. So I just don't understand how that can work if it's not coordinated, if people are not deliberately whitewashing this uh, very unseemly past. Before we move on, because I want to ask you about two articles you wrote. One is about Sasha Baron Cohen and one is about Bill Gates. But before we move on, to those. I wanted to focus a little bit on what is happening in Yemen. You obviously covered this in your piece, but in Yemen, Syria, and Somalia. Could you talk about that? Just about Yemen or the other two as well? All three. Yeah. So the United States, let's start with Somalia. The United States had been bombing that country on and off for a very long time. I found out that the military on the day of the Russian invasion uh, decided to launch uh, uh, an airstrike against uh, a group 
that they called terrorists. Who knows if that's true or not? But it was quite near the capital, Mogadishu. So they've restarted this uh, bombing campaign, which had been dormant for about nine or ten months. And that got, I believe, only one uh, article uh, in across the corporate media, despite the fact that the military actually put out a, a press release about it. So presumably that went to every single outlet that I studied that went straight into their inboxes and nobody decided to pick it up. I mean, Israel on Syria, that's been going on for many years, in fact. Since 1967, in fact, Israel has occupied parts of Syria. I'm talking about the Golan Heights. The United States also occupies Syria, most of the northeastern region. And that's really been a, a sort of low-level conflict for many years, which has been simmering um, really since the start of the Syrian civil war 10 years ago. Um, in terms of Ukraine, though, that is the bloodiest conflict in the world right now. The United Nations continues to call it the world's worst humanitarian crisis. They estimated that... Ukraine or Yemen? Uh, Yemen. Freudian slip. You just said you... Oh, did I say Ukraine? Oh, so sorry. Yeah, in Yemen, the United Nations calls it the world's worst humanitarian crisis, where they estimated that by the end of 2021... Uh, nearly 300,000 people have already died, and more than 20 million need urgent humanitarian care. Most of the country doesn't have uh, drinkable water. Uh, most of the country is uh, extremely food insecure. I think the majority of babies in that country are now underweight or permanently stunted. The Saudi-led coalition has been... There's unprecedented cholera rates also. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible what's going on. And part of that cholera thing is that um, the Saudis have been intentionally targeting water plants and sewage facilities and also medical centers. Uh, and they've been doing that at a rate of one uh, airstrike every 10 years since the conflict began. The reason that they can get away with this is that they are armed, trained, funded, and defended by the US government. I did a study about this quite recently and found that since the Yemen campaign started, the US has um, greenlighted and shipped at least, at very least, $28 billion worth of weapons to Saudi Arabia. And the US is involved not only in just selling them the weapons, they also train Saudi pilots on how to use uh, their planes, they refuel them while in the air and also on the ground, and they even help with target acquisition as well. So the US government really does absolutely everything in this conflict except pull the trigger itself. And I know that people like Bernie Sanders and Ro Khanna and some people on the progressive left have really tried to push Biden and uh, even before that, even Trump, into accepting uh, you know, uh, measures that would mean that the US couldn't sell to Saudi Arabia. But even under Biden, that continues to this day. The administration has recently, for instance, uh, signed off on cruise missile deals, on deals for Apache and Blackhawk helicopters. These things are not being used defensively, as Biden claims. Uh, so this campaign is going to go on and on and on. And unfortunately, in January 2022, so two months ago, that was uh, officially the worst and bloodiest month of the conflict since it began. To me, what's so important about this is it's not obviously like, oh, don't care about Ukrainians, care about other victims. It's two things. One is we do need to care about all victims, even when they're not politically convenient. But it also reveals that 
and I find this helpful when I'm talking to people, which is like almost the entire world who just thinks that the answer to what's happening in Ukraine is to arm Ukrainians. Like they really think that that's how you're going to save Ukrainians. And once you point out that obviously the U.S. government is not motivated by humanitarian concerns or else we wouldn't be arming and supporting what Saudi Arabia is doing in Yemen, then it forces you to look at, well, what really is behind this? And I think that kind of breaks the narrative. If you can get to people that can help break the kind of groupthink around it. I think much of the problem is that simply people don't know what's going on in Yemen. In fact, I found doing that study, I found that MSNBC had covered Russia and Ukraine more in a week than they had Yemen in its entirety for so for eight years of the war. So one week's coverage of Ukraine was more than eight years worth of coverage of Yemen. In fact, MSNBC went uh, an entire year without even mentioning it on their network. So I don't think we can really be surprised when we see polls that show that, for instance, more than half of all British people don't even know there's a war in Yemen. Because, you know, how are they going to know unless they're, you know, really plugged into the alternative media scene? They're just not. Some people in the comments have said, and people in the past have said this, they say, what's the evidence that the Azov Battalion is the backbone of the army? And also people point out that Zelensky himself is Jewish. So how do you respond to those questions? Yeah, there's no, I'm certainly not saying Zelensky is a Nazi himself. In fact, I believe his parents uh, were survivors of uh, World War II and the Holocaust. But um, actually, Zelensky was elected not that long ago, pretty much on one uh, platform, which was a peace with Russia. And he tried to implement this, but he does need support from the far right. And they told him in no uncertain terms to you know, completely squash that. Zelensky also actually tried to, you know, try and um, pull back the far right and uh, wane in, uh, rein in their influence. But he was completely crushed on that and had to do this humiliating, submissive U-turn. Um, so, you know, uh, the Azov Battalion, which was a paramilitary group uh, with the far right, has now been formally melded into the Ukrainian National Guard. We see uh, official Twitter accounts for uh, the Ukrainian government reposting what is clearly neo-Nazi propaganda. We've seen, for instance, um, the uh, National Guard of Ukraine putting out videos about how their soldiers are dipping uh, their bullets in pig blood, pig fat, etc. And the reason is, is because they think that there's a very large percentage of the Russian army and its uh, auxiliaries are Muslim themselves. You know, 7% of the Russian population is Muslim, but there's also a lot of Chechen fighters that are apparently... Uh, also traveling to Ukraine to help Russia with that. So yeah, I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't be you know, sympathetic to Ukraine, but the fact of the matter is, is that to a really remarkable extent, given that, that they don't really have many seats in the parliament, uh, the far right does really call the shots, especially because in 2014, it was really the far right who pushed uh, the Maidan revolution or the Maidan coup into being. In fact, there's a very famous clip of one of their leaders talking about how without them in the streets, you know, they said, yeah, sure, 90% of the people in Kiev are not uh, neo-Nazis, but the 10% who are, are actually 90% of the force here. And without us, that Maidan uh, protest would have just been a gay pride parade. And we're the ones that are really taking control of the situation. Well, this is now, I think we talked about some really important stuff and I want to go into some other interesting stuff. So if you're watching this live, you're in luck. You get to see this whole thing. And if you're watching this later, the following is going to be Patreon only. We're going to talk about an article that Alan did on Bill Gates and then an article that he did on Sasha Baron Cohen. So again, to access that, go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. 
Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.